all for being here this evening for neuroscience, visual art, the complex relationship of light, color, and the brain by Dr. Aziz Shabani. Um, this is presented jointly by the Houston Museum of Natural Science and Rothko Chapel. We are so excited for this partnership. My name's Amy Featherston Potts, and I'm the Director of Adult Education here at the museum. And my job is to plan fun educational events for adults, just like you guys. We have an army of people that do similar things for children, but um, my army is Daniel and Ruth, who you saw back shepherding you in. Um, and I'm happy to welcome so many new faces here tonight for our lecture. Um, We're delighted to share the opportunity to take a look at art through science. And while I make a couple of announcements about what's coming up next week, please take the time to silence and dim your devices, just as a precaution so you, to protect your neighbor from light pollution. And just in case you can't resist from tweeting how much fun you're having here at the lecture. Our annual spring lecture, co-sponsored by the Leakey Foundation, is next week on Tuesday. Dr. Jeremy De Silva of Dartmouth will be here to talk about the exciting anthropological find Homo naledi. And this is a huge collection of bones that were found deep in a chamber in South Africa. And one thing was the whole of only a few people on the team could get to the cave, and it was very small females and who were nimble and small enough to get down into this little cave and we're so excited that we just found out today that one of the these female team members becca palexta is going to be joining us next week she's living in dallas now so she's going to come down for the talk um so we hope you can join her um we also are happy to welcome terrence murtaugh back to the museum he was an integral part of our renovation for the equipment in the planetarium a couple years ago, and he also helped with our solar eclipse trip to Casper, Wyoming in 2017. Um, let's see, I think we still have a few people coming to sit down. Um, actually, Matt, can you switch the slides? And I'm gonna turn things over to David Leslie, the Executive Director of Rothko Chapel. Good evening, everyone. And Amy, thank you very much for the hospitality and for uh, helping to host tonight's program. It's really great. Uh, we are in the middle, if you haven't been to the Rothko Chapel lately, you'll see something quite extraordinary. It's a mess. We have a major construction project going as we are restoring the interior of the chapel, much like it was before, but using very, very modern technology to help with the lighting in the chapel, and also uh, doing some new building, uh, new program center and welcome house for visitors. So uh, we're really glad to take the chapel on the road, and particularly for this series on light architecture and art and it's uh, our first offering was at the University of Houston School of Architecture and it's nice to be here tonight so thank you very much for having us um, I also want to extend my thanks to my colleagues Ashley Clemmer and Kelly Johnson and our somewhere out there I see our program chair Joyce Sal who 
who is uh, as a team and all the volunteers that make uh, uh, the programming at the chapel possible. So I want to throw that in too. Thank you very much. So uh, tonight's uh, program, I want to turn to that and kind of set the scene for you. One of the most interesting topics uh, for conversation with a visitor to the Rothko Chapel is their interpretation and understanding of what they see when they enter the chapel and encounter the magnificent 14 paintings by Mark Rothko. Why is it for some people, the experience is described as deeply spiritual, moving them to the point of tears and other expressions of deep emotion? Why for others does the visit lead them to talk in terms of a peaceful place where they shed thoughts, or as the Buddhists would say, quiet the monkey mind? Why for others is the counter with the light, architecture, and the art described as a conversation with the divine, aided by the artist's brushstrokes, color palette that includes dark purples and reds? And finally, on a day when it may be dark or a thunderstorm is brewing, or even in the evening with the soft wash of light on the paintings, why are there people that come and say simply, where are the paintings? So within this visual art context, what do we really see and experience when we engage art in its many manifestations? And how does light, our eyes, our brains, our whole body and neural synapses going every which direction, how do they work together in shaping these encounters? To help us probe these important and other questions, it's my privilege and pleasure this evening to present a good friend, Dr. Aziz Shabani, who is a practicing neurologist in Houston, specializing in neuromuscular medicine and neurophysiology. While his bio is in your program, I do want to lift up some important aspects of Dr. Shabani's commitments and career. He graduated from Mosul University in Iraq in 1983 and completed residency in neurology and a fellowship in neuromuscular disorders at Baylor College of Medicine, and is currently the director of Nerve and Muscle Center of Texas and is affiliated with Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center. He is active in numerous professional societies, including serving as a past president of the National Arab American Medical Association, and has published many peer-reviewed articles and the prize-winning book, Video Atlas Neuromuscular Diseases. He currently serves as the president of the Arab American Educational Foundation, which recently gave the University of Houston a $1 million gift to support the Arab American Educational Foundation Colloquium Endowment, Graduate Seminar, and the Center for Arab Studies Endowment, all of which will hold and sponsor a variety of educational activities dedicated to improving society understanding of Arab culture. What is really exciting is that when it opens, the University of Houston will join Georgetown University as one of only two universities in the country to have academic centers that focus solely on the modern Arab world. And if that was not enough, he also serves on the Rothko Chapel Board of Directors. He's an active member of our program committee. And with that, I would like all of us to welcome Dr. Shabani, mindful that after his talk, there'll be time for Q&A with you, the audience. So Dr. Shabani.
Good evening, everyone. Well, the screen is very intimidating. I, I'm very pleased to see so many of my friends and to uh, have new friends. Uh, the, uh, I would like to thank so many people that made this possible. You know, Joyce Salhut is the head of the programs committee who brought up this idea of giving a lecture about the lights. Uh, Carol Mancusi on Gero. Is Carol here? She said she is coming. You know, Carol is the Associate uh, Director for uh, Conservation and Research at the Whitney Museum in New York, and she helped me. Uh, she provided information about the digital restoration project. Christopher Rothko, the son of Mark Rothko, was very kind to provide information about the insight of his father into the impact of light. Um, the uh, Mohib uh, Barguthi has helped uh, me with the technical uh, advice and of course, the staff at, uh, at the uh, Rothko Chapel, uh, uh, David uh, uh, Leslie uh, and uh, Ashley uh, Clemmer, uh, Tay Tran, Kelly Johnson and others, Chiquita, they have done a great job facilitating this. And uh, Amy Potts, the associate director here uh, for adult uh, education, really very, very delightful and uh, she was very uh, helpful to get this place uh, for this lecture. And finally, my son, Ahmed Shaibani, who suggested that we do the background black that would reflect better on this screen. <laughs> the, just a little intro, so you have an insight about further discussion about this. The Rothko Chapel has commissioned uh, Rothko, Mark Rothko, who is a very prominent uh, uh, artist from New York, to uh, make paintings uh, for a space uh, for meditation. And he moved his studio uh, to a new place where he had a skylight to imitate what his painting would face when came to Houston. But the sunlight in New York is not the same sunlight in Houston. So therefore, we, since then, there has, have been problems about what should we do to get the perfect light on the paintings. And Mark Rothko was very specific about this lighting environment, how much of light has to be shed into his paintings. He always said the low light level uh, slows down the reaction to create a sense of mystery and to, to penetrate to the deeper tones uh, of the paintings and also for the eye to adjust. So he, he was very specific and it's very well known anecdote that when he helped Duncan Phillips in in Washington, D.C., to set up the Rothko Room. Whenever he visited D.C., he would go and turn the light, lights down to be right at the right level. Sometimes he would go more than one time uh, to make sure that the lights were good. And, and his son uh, uh, provided me, uh, Christopher provided me with a letter that he sent, uh, Mark Rothko sent to the White Chapel Gallery in 1961, where he really emphasized uh, on the uh, fact that the light should not be too strong because the paintings have their own inner vision and you don't want to weaken that by very strong light. And also, he very clearly showed that his works should be evenly lighted or lit and not strongly. Evenly and not strongly. Uh, that's a very important part of viewing his works. And 
Roscoe Chapel is a place where people get together for contemplation, for trying to act for human rights, people who like arts. And the paintings in the Roscoe Chapel look differently at different time of the day. This is in the middle of the day, and this is uh, maybe in the afternoon. Because the skylight, basically, they cannot be subjected to artificial light. The skylight brings the light at different time of the day, and you know the composition of the sunlight is not the same throughout the day. So it brings more uh, of the value of these paintings throughout the day, and after all, uh, it is not what you uh, look at, but it is what you see. So different people see different things by looking at these uh, different parts of the day. So I took advantage of this moment when people now, of course, these skylights were modified maybe four times over the last 50 years. None of these modifications really did it. But now the chapel is undergoing a huge renovation, restoration, and in the center of that is restoring the uh, the, the skylights. Uh, they hired a very sophisticated, advanced team to come and give you the exact light that you need to. So basically, you are going to have the light focused on the paintings instead of the wall. So it will not be diffused. It will be focused on the paintings, and it will be uh, it will be variable according to the time of the day. So here, I wanted to show you that even the walls look different. If you look here, even the paintings of Rothko change the color of the walls. So I think even the walls here cannot wait to get the paintings back to restore their color. <laughs> and Rothko always said that too much white always fight against the, his, his pictures. So now we go to the, to the bulk of the, uh, to the to what, uh, uh, what we are going to talk about. If you see here, uh, uh, this is the, can you tell who was the painter? Renoir. Renoir was the king of the, of the pink. I mean, no one could really beat his pink. So if you look at this for Renoir, uh, the f the, when you look at this, there are several things that make your visual perception. Number one, the source of light. Number two, the type of the object that reflects the light, which is the painting. What kind of, of uh, colors, what kind of uh, uh, canvas. And the third thing is that your own memories and experiences. So. We are going to talk about the source, the light, what are the sources, what are the properties, the laws of reflection, and the perception of light, the brain mechanisms, and give you some examples. Now, I have a, a word of caution is, now, the first part of the lecture will be about science, and the second part will be about art. And I have always been interested in bringing these together and, and try to bridge uh, 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 the gap. How many of you here by profession or by love, is in the field or in the camp of science. Raise your hands. Okay. How many of you are in the other field of art and creative literature and humanities? Okay, well, this is amazing. I mean, this, is, this, this museum is for science, I guess. You have more science people. So, so now, in the first part of the, of the lecture, it's about science, uh, the other camp probably will fall asleep. And the second part, this camp will fall asleep. So it will be your duty to waken up each other place in the right time. <laughs> the modern optics is indebted to this man. This man in the Western literature, they call him Al-Hazan. Uh, he's an Arab from Basra, which is, belongs to Iraq today. 
His name is Al-Hassan ibn al-Haytham. That was about a thousand years ago. This guy established many principles that are used today, uh, uh, basically in the modern physics. Number one, he said before him people thought that we see things because our eyes are the light and the source of light. So we see things because our eyes shed light. He told them, how come you don't see in a dark room? If your lights are the source. If your, uh, so it should be something else. The light should be reflected from something. And it comes from something else, not from your eyes. Then he established that the vision occurs in the brain. Because sometimes you look at the same thing, but we have different vision, different interpretation. And he said that hypothesis has to be confirmed irreproducibly by scientific method. So basically, he is the father of the scientific method 500 years before the European Renaissance. And he put the conceptual framework of the retinal image theory of uh, Kepler. And uh, a lot has been written about him in the, in the West. But if you go to the Wikipedia, they jump from Euclid to Descartes when they talk about optics, bypassing 1,000 years of discoveries for a simple reason that this concept is embedded in the Western mind, that science is only Western. This map that he drew in his book shows very detailed pathway from the eyes to the optic chiasm where the, there's crisscross to the brain. The picture you see in the anatomy lessons today is not very much different than this, that's a thousand years ago. So what is light now? If you ask a Sufi man, what is light? He'll tell you there's an internal light. You don't see outside. This is not our lecture about. Light is really is a physical phenomena. It is the part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we see. So there's a huge spectrum. Consists of X-rays, ultraviolet, microwave, radio waves. You go to, the, to work, you put it on the FM. You heat your food with the microwave. You go to the hospital, get x-rays. All these are electromagnetic spectra. But the only part that we see is this narrow. So you can imagine how much we don't see. Because most of this is filtered out by the atmosphere. It does not reach to us. And it is harmful to the eye. So whatever is left is usually cleared by the cornea and by the lens. Shrimps don't have cornea and lens. They see some of the ultraviolet light. So that is a good example about how creatures on Earth has evolved to make the best of whatever is available for them. The light is a very strange phenomenon. I mean, it, it really, it, the, this small band that we use to see expands, extends from red to the purple and all this spectrum. And as you know, you cannot talk about visual art without talking about colors. So light means colors. The speed of light is one of these universal constants, 300,000 kilometer per second. So if you have a torch now and, and click the light, it can go around the globe seven and a half times in one second. Seven and a half times. So that, that's, and they measure distances not by a second, not by a minute, not by an hour. They measure distances in the universe by billions of years. I mean, when in the evenings, when my wife and I sit, and I usually read a book in medicine or physics, and she is a novelist, so she writes, she reads uh, uh, novels. So when I talk about this, tell her that the speed of light, and if we speed up, then the time will become zero. She looks at me, she says, maybe it's too late. Have you got enough sleep last night? Are you okay? <laughs> then she starts reading from her novel, a 75-year-old man, he went to a place where he ended up in a garden, colorful, uh, uh, 
birds and uh, butterflies and then uh, spring of water and brought some flashback. He remembered his mom. I tell him, so what? So what? So this is the difference between the science and art, different minds, and we need to really bring them together because both sides need each other. Because if you are, people tell me that why we have both of them extremely, and David said what people, some people look at the paintings, they think, where, where is the painting? So the, we, people, some people are sensational. They see their surroundings with their senses. They don't analyze everything, and that's, 200,000 years on earth, people usually moved by intuitions and senses. But you still need some analytical people to analyze everything. So if you have a brain tumor and you want a new, good neurosurgeon to remove it, do you want the neurosurgeon to be metaphorical during that moment and remove your eye instead of remove your, your brain tumor? But if you are in a place where you are having a, a beer, enjoying the place and uh, in the museum or swimming and relaxing, the last thing you want is someone to ask you about the speed of light. Now, how come we don't use the x-ray to see each other? Uh, number one, we don't have much of x-ray in the atmosphere. But even if we use the x-ray, you can imagine like I now look at all of you, I just see skulls and jaws and teeth. And I cannot tell who likes the lecture, who's sleepy. And in the, in the forest also, you cannot tell who likes you, who's your enemy, who's your friend. So we have developed this facial expressions are very important for survival and for aesthetics. The, if you pass the light through a, a prism, it splits into seven colors. You know, the high wave, the largest wavelength is basically the red, and then the shortest one is the purple. And because the the purple basically bends more than the red because of the difference in the wavelength, and so you see different colors. And the same thing explains the rainbow. When the droplets of of rain, the sun basically the light is refracted, reflected refract it again and give you, it, it basically split the light into its colors. And sometimes you get a secondary rainbow that has inverse colors because the light is reflected twice inside the drop. And light is used very well by, by artists. Uh, and they develop different, each artist develops his own colors that no one else can do it. And they produce almost spiritual experience. Like can anybody beat Van Gogh for his yellow? or Renoir for his uh, pink, or Yves Klein for his blue. These, these are amazing people. They have made their own paintings, and no one could really do what they did in terms of the color that provoke your sensation. The light, of source, the, the light is the source of life, because when the sun hits the plants, photosynthesis, they form starch. All animals eat the starch and produce energy. So light means life. Without light, there's no life on Earth. Also, it's good for vitamin D. Many of you have low vitamin D because you are not exposed to light very much, or we are exposed to light from behind windows, which deprive the light from its ultraviolet component, which you need to convert the lipid under the, the fat under the skin to vitamin D. So you need to be exposed. Not, you cannot just from behind the clothes, it does not penetrate. And you need to have maybe half an hour a day for three uh, times a week. So basically, you tell people you have to be naked out in the street in the middle of the day for half an hour a day, three times a week. Because only the sun of the middle of the day has ultraviolet. The two extremes, in the morning and evening, it has more infrared or red. So it is not, does not work that way. And only 43% of the sunlight is visible. And sunlight has always inspired 
artist. If you look at the Monet, and this is a sunrise, is an amazing thing. I mean, the more you look at it, really, the more you want to look at it. Light means colors and means brightness. Many people forget about brightness. For example, here, it is fully photochromic picture, but doesn't have brightness. So you cannot see the depth, you cannot see the spatial orientations. This one, on the other hand, has enough brightness, but doesn't have the colors. You cannot tell which one is which. This one is the right one because it has the right colors and the light, the right amount of light or the basically brightness. So brightness and colors go side by side always. So when you go to Photoshop, always you find saturation, uh, brightness, colors always go hand by hand. Since we are in the Museum of Natural uh, Arts, uh, and in order to make Amy happy, uh, I think it is very important to tell you that the human brain is not very much different than a Museum of Natural Science. Over millions of years, when animals evolve, always new layers are added. Always start with a lower layer, then after millions of years, you get another layer, another layer, and each layer is more sophisticated. For example, this is called the reptile brain. Simple thing, breathing, heart rates, severe pain, it responds to these things. So I'll give you an example. If you get a frog and put it in a pot of boiling water, what do you think it would do? To jump, right? But if you get a, a frog and put it in a pot of warm water and gradually go up on the temperature, it will still there quiet until it turns into a frog soup. <laughs> Why? Because their brain only feels extremes. It does not, it's not really uh, there yet to discriminate. While in humans, you can discriminate two bricks on your skin <clears throat> separated by five millimeters. <clears throat> we use that in the clinic. <clears throat> in the clinic for to examine patients. It's called two-point discrimination. Then you get the limbic brain or the emotional brain. Animals, they have love, they have memories. And then you get the intellectual brain, the human and mammalian's brain. So when the light hits the eye, it hits the cornea, then goes to the lens, and then goes all the way back and here's the retina. Retina is a very important structure. You see this retina? If you take a piece of the retina, you see it consists of two structures, rods and cones. The cones are good to feel, to see colorful things and read details, while the rods are only good for black and white and at night. These are, this is important. And the rods are scattered all around, while the cones are only in the center of the retina, an area called fovea. And there are millions of cones and roads. And that's how color is processed. So the, the retina will change the photons into electrical signal and send it to the brain. And then here it goes to the brain, they crisscross, uh, and, and then goes to the back of the brain. And the back of the brain is an amazing part. You know, this is another uh, picture of the retina. We have the fovea that is very concentrated in cones. So if you want to, want to see the details of anything, you better focus on it. Because if you see it on the margin of your eye, you will miss many details. But you will see more emotions. Because emotions, basically the muscles are very rough in the face, not details. So if you want to really read the emotions of someone, look at them at the, uh, from the side of your eye, from the margin of your eye. Not, don't focus on them. Because that part will read the emotions much more than you focus on that. Teaching you some tricks today. Um, the, uh, the brain... When you see it in the lab, it is a very jelly-like structure, about 1.5 uh, grams, 1.5 kilograms, you can hold it in the palm of your hand. And it's really, when you see it, it is more disgusting than inspiring. 
just a mesh of just beat. But it is the center of inspiration, the center of love, the center of uh, beauty, and it has 100 billion cells. And, and it, the, the, the super layer, it is covered by four millimeters layer called the cortex. This is probably the most sophisticated matter in the universe. It has so many functions, so many cells. Uh, the cortex consists of six layers, and each layer has different processing mechanisms to put things together. And, and this is a real cell, not a drawing, real cell. The brain has 100, and bil 100 billion cells like this. And each one makes connections with a thousand cells around it. So you can imagine you have zillions of connections, and, and in, the, in this context you have to understand the you have to look at the aesthetics and uh, the mind and the other features within this very rich, dense area of connections. <clears throat> so this is the back of the brain. The brain is divided in different areas. Some of them are responsible for vision, hearing, uh, emotions, movement, sensation. The, some people think that the, because the eyes are in the front, so the visual area is in the front too. That's wrong. The area that specializes in processing visual input is in the back of the head. If you fall on the back of the head and hit your head, you may go blind. If you get a stroke in the back of the head, you may go blind. In the front, it's a different thing. Therefore, reasoning, thinking, and stuff like this. So in, in the medical school, we only were told that the back of the brain is the occipital perception area. But now we know there are 30 areas in the back of the brain that process uh, uh, different uh, visual uh, stimuli. 30 areas. Like some areas, the, the first thing is the the, this is the post office where all the stimuli come to it from the eye, stay there, and then distributes. It, this one area, this area is specialized in perception of form. Not the form. This one is perception of color. Also three zones for the main three colors. And, and, and this area is in motion. If you lose it, you will not see any motion. Everything will freeze. Uh, and it is not surprising that the area of the face, where you recognize faces, is very close to the area of the colors because these are the two most important things you need for survival. Colors and facial recognition. And so they are both big and very well represented in the brain. And we see that people who get strokes all the time, they miss certain areas. Uh, some people don't see colors, some people don't see motion, some people don't see form, or some people see different things that you, you can tell you that this picture, yeah, I see a, an animal, I see a plant, I see a cottage. But they cannot tell you this is the forest because it's a place to feel something called gestalt pathway where you see the gestalt picture. <clears throat> so what is it that the artist can do that I cannot do? I mean, what was why the Mona Lisa is much more beautiful than any picture you take for even Mona Lisa herself or for any other face, all, always the portraits convey more information provoke more emotions and impress people than the picture itself. Because you don't need museums, just you have your iPhone and take pictures for things. The, the artists have this genius ability that they can extract some essence from things that we don't see. Essential features. And in my lecture in the Museum of Fine Arts, I went about uh, in details about this. You can look up the lecture under brain science and visual art about really uh, what does that mean? Essence is not only a philosophical word, but you can see it in the lab. How, what, what does the essence mean when, in, in the experimental medicine? Uh, is there something called essence you can extract and process in the brain? So basically, they, by doing that, they are giving an essential character, lasting character for the things. 
I mean, you look at these paintings for years and hundreds of years, they, they don't fade, they don't get uh, cheaper. Always they become, are val valuable. And of course, people use these mechanisms differently. Like in the past, the art was figurative art. You can look, you say, this is a house, this is a horse. Then Picasso and the Cubism, they liberated the form. The form is, doesn't matter anymore. They reflected their inner vision, like this is a Guernica for Picasso. I mean, this is a very majestic thing. If you look at it, the actual one in, the, in, the, in Madrid, in the museum, you more, the more you look at it, the more, you, even you don't need to analyze it. It just provokes something against wars, against terrorism. While Matisse said, I'm not going to, I'm going to liberate even, not only the form, I'm going to liberate the color. I will use the color to convey my message. So people use different themes to convey their colors, and some of them they use light. Uh, like, for example, Trudeau uh, was hired, I think this is, uh, have you been to the Museum of Fine Arts? You have seen this. This is, it gives you an, an, an experience you cannot, uh, you cannot describe. Because Terrell, he said that my art has no object, has no focus. It is enough to provoke an experience of wordless thought. Just he used the light to provoke this experience. <coughs> but our lecture today is not about the light art, but about how to use art in the normal painting uh, to make it more appealing. For example, not many of you, if you look at this and you see the lights without even analyzing it, but if you see the lights here on the sheep and the light here in the mist, you can always say this is what time of the day? This is the morning, the dawn. People, farmers are going to work. This is painted by an Iraqi artist, is Omar Hushuk from Bakuba. And he is a guy who uh, was very uh, famous for using light in different paintings to convey different feelings. So light is very important to convey the feeling of the artist. And it is very important for the perception of light to know that colors affect other colors. So for example, here the black, of course, if anything absorbs all the light, is black. If it reflects all the light, it's white, right? If it reflects red, it's red. If it reflects blue, it's blue. This black color, Morozco, it affects the the color above and below. So if you look at these colors without this, they are different, not the same. That's very important. Also, say Van Gogh was very famous for using a complementary color wheel. This wheel has com complementary colors. Complementary colors means if you mix them, you get either white or you get black uh, because they complement each other. So if you use, say, red with a green, like he did, red with a green, they contrast each other. They give you more contrast than if you use them alone. So this is a technique, people use it, and it says that the colors owes its brightness to the force of contrast rather than to its inherent qualities. So what you see really is not only reflective of the inherent quality, but of the surroundings. That is an important concept. <coughs> I'm going to give you examples <coughs> about how uh, three examples of light being used to extract the most appealing aesthetic experience. Monet was an impressionist, and he always wanted to use a light in a fashion that impresses people because he thinks light, you can make things out of light, just light itself can make an art. So what he did, this is a, a cathedral, Rouen Cathedral in France, Normandy. 
he went there and he he rented a place in front of the church and sat there 10 hours a day for two years and arranged several canvases because he cannot use one canvas he wanted to capture the moment of the day of the season and then he took them back to his studio and worked on them and finished them and basically his work I think this is the only book that I am aware of called Monet Cathedral by uh, Pissarro that has all the paintings together because these paintings are in different museums and different private collectors you don't see them all together but this book shows them all of them and this is a cathedral uh, when cathedral spelled right here and if you look here uh, he he basically thought that light constructs form you know what that means the light constructs form and here I'll show you some of these paintings look like the cathedral itself dissolves into light the project is now about lights not about the cathedral uh, <clears throat> if you look here for example you can tell this is uh, probably this is the earliest one he drew uh, in the morning I mean, this is basically mostly mist and uh, before the Sun uh, shine here in the beginning of the sunshine, the first threads of the sun hits the tower. The rest is still very shadowy. You don't see it, but only you see first threads of light in the morning. This is 8.30 in the morning, and you see a house close to it is also identified. And you see some of the shadows here. If you look at here, this is also in the morning. Now the light starting going down, while the rest of it is still in the shadow. And, and here in the 5 p.m., when basically the all these, if you see them in the morning, you see more blue. In the evening, you see more red. In the middle of the day, you see more white. We are not going to explain everyone, but I want to give you the flavor of it. Like here, here about 2, 3 p.m., it is all white. Very small areas in the portal shadow, and here is shadow. But most of it is white. While here, 6 p.m., basically the shadow is in here, and the sun started receding uh, uh, back. And here's again around noon and here 1 to 2 p.m. when the sun during summertime is very strong. And basically uh, here as you see the balance between the shadow and light. Again, this is all shadow and this is all light. And this area you see the yellow facade. Basically you try to have the western facade of the cathedral. Uh, and you see the portals are orange now. So he used different colors. You see, you see the blue sky, the orange portals, the shadow, and you see yellow, the yellow light here. There's another one, again, shows very nice blue sky and orange facade, while here, strong light that almost drenches the whole stone. There's another one, showed the distinction between the light and shadow is blurred, while here they are very clear. So if you look at this, 30 paintings, 3-0. This stands very uh, famous for his ability to capture the light in different parts of the day and different parts of the season. And you see always the blues are usually in the mornings, the reds are in the afternoon because the composition of the sunlight, and then uh, the white ones are during the day. This is an amazing piece, portrays the importance of capturing the moment of the light during the different days and different weather conditions. Now, if you pass by, drive by the, by the uh, Rowing Cathedral, you will not see any of these 30 paintings, colors. You just see a cathedral. That's very important. So he could produce something you don't see, but it happened. Why, when you drive by the cathedral 
different times of the day, different seasons, it still looks a cathedral to you. You really you don't see all these things. That's the question. So what did he, what he could you produce you did not see? And why he pleased you by producing these effects? There is a, a principle called color constancy. If you have a green leaf, you see it in the morning, see in the middle of the day, you see it in the afternoon. It looks green to you. But if you measure the light that's reflected from it, in the morning there's more uh, red, right? But during the daytime is more ultraviolet. So different colors, different luminance, luminances does not affect the character of the leaf. This is called color constancy, and it's very essential. Otherwise, you would not recognize the leaf or the apple or anything. You'll have to find something else to recognize it. And this is a very complicated neurological mechanism. Occurs at different levels of nervous system. Very complicated one. I don't want to go through it. This is basically part of this is unconscious inference, part of this sensory adaptation, and it happens in both retina and visual cortex. But this is called color constancy, and he could capture these colors that your brain discarded in favor of your survival, in favor of your recognition. <clears throat> so many things your brain tried to be reasonable, but you miss a lot of sensations. Uh, some, Sometimes your intuitions give you more uh, better decisions than overthinking about things. Now, how many of you here <laughs> see this as yellow and golden and white? Raise your hand. How many you see this as golden and white? Okay. How many of you see this as, see, she's turning her head because she said, what she's talking about? What are <laughs> now, how many of you see blue and black? My gosh, my gosh. Uh, how many see gold and white, please, again? Okay, this is much less, huh? We'll analyze the two specimens and see what's wrong with their brain, huh? In 2015, uh, the mother, uh, took a picture of the dress that she was going to use in the wedding of her daughter. And she showed it to her daughter and future brother-in-law. The daughter saw it as a blue and black. The son said, no, this is gold and white. So they posted that in the, on the internet to basically get judgment from the people. Now people got divided. People got divorced. People got fighting each other. People did not recognize the other side at all. At all. I mean, I'm seeing something you don't see. What are you talking about? Now, uh, who sees this as a blue and a black? This one here. The blue and the black. And who sees this as white, gold, and white? This one. Not many, right? Because it is appropriately lit. Who sees this as a white and gold? Okay, because the surrounding is very appropriately lit. So when you shed enough light on it, then you see it differently. And more light, you see this. Less light, you see this. Now. Hey, listen, during the last few days while I was out here dancing and entertaining the world, there's been a controversy happening. I've waited a few days to talk about it, to let the emotions die down. It's finally time for me to break my silence. I see white and gold. people out there that say they see blue and black, and those people are crazy. Yeah. Who sees blue and black? 
sees white and gold? is divided about the color of the dress. Taylor Swift said she thinks it's blue and black. So does Justin Bieber. Uh, Kanye West sees white and gold. Kim Kardashian sees blue and black. It's tearing apart friendships and families. This is why I don't wear dresses. That's the reason right there. Here's the crazy thing. It turns out the real dress is blue and black. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. The real dress is wrong. It's crazy you can be so sure about what you're seeing and still be wrong. It's the way I felt about my mullet in the 80s. I was so sure it was the right thing to do. Apparently, there is science behind why the dress looks different to different people, and here's how the scientists are explaining it. Light travels in waves, and your eyes contain thousands of rods and cones that send signals to your brain. Your brain determines which part of the object is illuminated, and the reason this dress looks different is because the dress is an optical illusion created by the devil. That's all. That's all I'll say about it. I'm not going to say anything else about it for now, because a little later, I'm going to interview the actual dress. We have the dress here. We have the owner of the dress, the person who took the picture, and I am not going to let them leave the building until they tell me it is white and gold. Good. So the, uh, the, what you see is not only the character of the object that you see, but there are so many factors that affect the way you see it. As you said, as we said, the source, the features of the reflecting body and your perception, three things. For example, this one, I mean, I'm not sure if I can convince you that A and B are the same color. How many of you see them differently? Yeah. Right, yeah, the A and B are different, right? Anyone sees them the same, A and B, the boxes? Anyone see them differently? No, a few of you. Because basically, they played with the shadows, and the, the brain do, does not only look at this. If you look at here, you, you, you draw something between them, now they become the same color. Because the shadow that's created by this, and the checkerboard created expectations in the brain, so the brain will see it differently. If you look at this here, it is the same dress, okay, same dress, but because the background color has changed, you see it differently. Okay? Now, here, the picture did not tell you much about the conditions around it. If, if the conditions were clear to you, too much light, too little light, the brain would have made the calculations and tell you this is black and blue if it's overexposed, or white and gold if it's underexposed. When there is no information about the surrounding conditions, your brain tries to create a, meeting, a meaning for things. Always the brain does not like ambiguities. Try to make a meaning. That's how we survived hundreds of thousands of years. You have to create a meaning, and usually that meaning is correct. You either run away or get close. Or So the brain will make that meaning based on your experiences, your memories, your age. I mean, so many things that I don't think even science knows exactly why people say this is. Some people try to say you have more roads in your retina you see them dark. If you have more cones, you see it. But that's not true. A few minor differences does not make this huge difference. 
So it has something to do, to do with the unconscious processing. 90% of your information is unconsciously processed and make you make decisions. You don't know why you made them. A recent study has shown that when you see people colors, blue, red, white, and they pick up the color they like and they put electrodes in the cells that sense colors. The brain decides about the color 300 milliseconds before you know. And then you think that you are making decisions and have free will. <laughs> the last project I'm going to talk about is Carol here. Yeah, Carol did not come, maybe. She told me she's coming. So Carol is a, was probably involved very, very heavily with this project. You know, Mark Rothko uh, has donated five murals to Harvard Dining Room in 1963. Unfortunately, they were overexposed and irreversibly damaged, so they had to be retired in 1979. But fortunately, he kept one of the paintings in his lab in a good condition. <coughs> so he insisted to put them in the, in the dining room, where there are windows. People cannot resist pulling the curtains aside to look at the nice view of the Charles River. And then the sun would hit them and damage them. So people thought you could not really change them. It's not like a small area to go and fix it. Only recently, people used light to fix them. It's amazing. So this is the fainted one, and this is the real one. So what they did, they looked, they have a small system, a machine called spectrometer. You measure on the original that he had at home what kind of light <laughs> spectrum you are getting and what kind of light spectrum you are missing. You know, it's very easily you can measure it. And then you can compensate that missing light spectrum through a projector. And you put the projector on that painting all the time, and uh, you'll see them. You see, this is after the projector was made. It's similar to what you see in 1964, and this is before. So this is a new way for restoration uh, of work that cannot be repaired by touching it, called digital restoration. It is very important to, uh, to use uh, and it can produce exactly, even Christopher Rothko told me that you can see even the, the brush stroke, like it's fresh. If you don't see the lights, you cannot tell this is restored by lights. So in summary, the uh, light perception depends on the source, as I mentioned, and the composition, intensity, quantity, all these vary and also in the individual memories and in the characteristic of the reflecting object. The reflection of light from subjects during different times of the day produce different effects and change the aesthetic properties like you saw with, with the cathedral paintings. Artists utilize the light effect to show variations and extract essence and produce paintings. The eye and the brain are well equipped to utilize the light effect in order to produce maximum advantage and mostly survival. Now, the last slide, final thoughts. Number one, do not think you are the only holder of the truth. Okay? That's very important. That can produce wars and produce personal problems because truth is what you see. Someone else may see a different truth, may see blue and black and you see white and gold. Listen to other views. Be flexible. You know, being too much analytical may not always be helpful. Freud was correct when he said 95% of your mind is unconscious. Recent, you know, Eric Kandel in his book, The Disordered Brain, said that the Freud's teachings faded in the end of the last century 
because they were not, you could not experiment on them. You could not experiment and show what sublimation means or defense mechanism means. But now, uh, science started working on the subconscious and unconscious. And it has opened a new era for studying the 95% of our unconscious mind. It is not only repressed sexual desires and acceptable socially that direct your behavior. It's not only that. But we receive 500, billi 500 gigabytes per second of information. 500 gigabytes through different senses, through internal organs. And this all goes to the brain, only 2% reach your consciousness. So what happens with this information is classified, this information is compared, this information determines your behavior, and they all are there. And 20 years ago, if you ask a scientist, tell them, where's the unconsciousness? He tells you anything under the cortex is unconscious. Now we know that the subconsciousness occurs in the cortex itself. And only the small area, if they cross, they go to the consciousness. And this is uh, basically uh, uh, a very important uh, French scientist. Uh, he, his name is uh, Stan Dehaney. He showed exactly an area when that formation crosses it, it goes to the level of consciousness. Normally, if you see a picture, it goes away, you are not aware you saw it. Basically, it stays for 200 milliseconds and fades away. Stay there, but you don't, are not aware of it. If you are going to be conscious of it, it expands, become bigger and bigger, like tsunami. It goes to an area in the prefrontal region, it crosses it, and then spread to the cortex. He defined that area where information goes from unconscious to the conscious. So don't be analytical because a human being, the reasoning is only a new thing to the human being. For 200,000 years, people worked by intuition. I mean, if you see something in the jungle, see different colors, a different dots, gray colors, you are going to run away. This may be a tiger. If you are going to sit there and analyze and do statistics, <laughs> your genes will not be passed to us. You'll be gone, right? So only in the last maybe 15,000 years we started reasoning things. Experimental medicine and science is only 500 years old. So sometimes you stress out yourself and you press yourself trying to analyze everything, but you are going to miss a lot of sensations. So try to have a lot of sensational uh, part of your life to sense your surrounding and to be analytical when the right time uh, comes to be, need to be analytical. So I think I finished uh, in maybe 45 minutes, right, Amy? And uh, I think we're going to open the ground, the floor for questions and answers, right? Thank you very much. <coughs> yeah. I'll help repeat the question so everyone can hear. Any, raise your hand, right here. What draws you to this passion? Well, I, uh, I was drawn to neurology through philosophy and to philosophy through politics. So I was involved in, since I was a child, of politics and then I read philosophy. And the first question in philosophy is the relationship between the brain and mind, between matter and being. And then I started studying the brain. And then through my exposure to different schools and arts and philosophy and uh, mind, philosophy of mind, now I came to Houston, I got exposure to all these nice museums, started visit, visiting them, and I started connecting this with that. So. <clears throat> Yay, museums. <laughs> How do the other senses compare to the brain's analysis? To other the senses, like smell and taste, and how, how they affect our vision or our subconsciousness? 
brain analysis. Well, the analysis is affected by what you get from outside. Anything you get from outside will enter your brain and will help you to analyze things. A smell that you have never were exposed to is very hard to, for you to imagine. Um, but I think different people with different exposures, music, smell, good food, they have more exposure to different stimuli that enable them to analyze things differently. It doesn't have to be more re realistically and more close to the truth, maybe more sensationally, but they have more ability to interpret things based on these multiple stimuli. Right here. <coughs> Can you um, foresee artificial intelligence um, helping fix anything in neurologi neurologically? Implants. 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 Artificial intelligence, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. The, the, uh, basically, transplantation of brain in animals has succeeded in certain limits, but a lot of uh, problems are happening regarding connection of blood vessels and cells. Uh, but uh, in the fiction nowadays, when you see uh, many of the books like The Future of Mind, uh, Michel Cacao, you see, say that all the information can be uploaded to a computer and then maybe after a while you'll be able to upload them to a different brain. Uh, we are not there yet, uh, but everything is possible. I mean, uh, 50 years ago when I learned about faxing a letter from a country to another, I did not believe it. I thought, this is, uh, the guys are crazy. What, is it a rocket will take it there or what? I, I was in Syria in 1986, and someone told me, you want to send a letter to your brother in Sweden, uh, it can go in five, 15 minutes. I thought the Russians gave them different kind of rockets <coughs> to send it, <coughs> and <coughs> I'm serious. Then I went there, and he told me there's something called fax. Put the fax, and it goes there. Uh, you always get shocked by stuff, that's why I encourage you to go every now and then to places that show scientific advancements because you can be stressed out if there's a big discontinuation and you see new thing. Uh, technology can stress you out. So this is possible. People are working on it. People are working in Japan and France, here in this country. You cannot do it in humans, of course, but in animals, spinal cord, anastomosis of spinal cord, and that was successful, they can do it in animals. So that's possible. I, so one day maybe you'll have a small, go, a small chip, you, you lose part of your vision or memory, buy a chip and put it here, or <laughs> upload it and then it'll be okay. <clears throat> What's your favorite artwork and why? It depends on my mood, what part of the day, and what I want to do. If I really want to contemplate, uh, Roscoe paintings to me, it's a, a spiritual experience. You just go before it, and you see myself because you see yourself because uh, the more abstract the painting is, the more you add part of your experience into it and the, the painting is you and it combination. The more figurative the art is, like uh, you see farms or houses, the less likely you'll be challenged. And medically, when there's something for you to figure out, you get a boost of dopamine, they call it the aha moment. This aha moment is very pleasing to people. That's why abstract art is very, uh, give you pleasure. So it depends on my mood. If I don't want to have aha, I just want to look at something farmish. Go just look at the pictures or my, my camera maybe, just my iPhone. I want really to contemplate and be uh, spiritual and look very long at something to be part of it. I'll look at uh, Rothkow, Paul Jackson, De Kooning, and all the abstract uh, art. Are you? 
What happens to the brain when it's when you're looking at some large like the golden section or the Fibonacci series like the kind of squares and uh, rectangles you mean? But more specifically like Fibonacci series or golden section. Well, I don't know what golden section, but but a few geometrical thing you mean when you look at geometrical configurations? But like perfect perfect kind of because uh, Samir Zeki of the Institute of uh, Aesthetics in London has done a huge work on this. And I showed that in my previous lecture. You can look it up. Basically, he used small electrodes and inserted them in different visual cortical cells in the back of the head of the monkeys. And he found amazingly that some cells only sense lines. Not only that. Some cells only sense horizontal lines or vertical lines or oblique lines. If you change the direction, electrical activity in that cell will go down. So some cells only uh, visualize squares. Some of them uh, only sh uh, rectangles. And that's why Mondrian, if you look at his walkie-walkie, uh, so all these uh, squares and, and uh, uh, rectangles are very uh, uh, tenseless, very calming, because there are cells in the brain that basically, of course, artists don't know that. Although Samir Zeki thinks that artists are neurologists in a way, but they don't know what they are doing, but they are really working on our brain mechanisms to make the best of our ability to feel these things. And so there are areas in the brain that feel all these things, and uh, if you lose them, you'll... And lines are the source of all arts, you know, all the shapes or configurations, everything is, consists of lines. We never know who drew the first line thousands of years ago in the, in the cave. But whoever that was has opened a huge visual culture that we are all enjoying. Because lines, I mean, how come if I show you a sketch, you can tell that this, this is a sketch of uh, a guy walking in the street? Uh, if I draw a cat, you can say this is a cat. If you look at the cat, there are no lines in it. Well, how come this line tells you that it's a cat? Because the cells in the brain that sense the lines are the same ones that sense the shadows and borders. A huge discovery. So lines are very important. There are cells in the brain that sense lines. <coughs> Can you talk about Retinick's um, color vision, theory of color vision? Uh, lands on color vision? No. Is Yeah, I'm not aware. I know Lang in neurology, there's a scientist called Lang. But uh, uh, I will look him up. I'll see what kind of experimentation they did uh, at that time. <clears throat> I know Helmholtz was the father of colors, basically. Helmholtz has discovered so many things about color perception. He, he was a physicist. comment more on how light affects people's mood different times a day. Light or moon, you say? Do you say? Intensity. Intensity of light affect the mood of people. Oh, yeah. There's a disorder uh, called seasonal depression disorder uh, that people become depressed during winter time because of the low 
amount of light. Light works on a substance in the brain called melatonin. Melatonin is the substance that is responsible for the, for the coloration of the skin because it is related also to the uh, hormone called MSH, which is a melanocyte stimulating hormone. And they are both produced by the hypothalamus. And melatonin is very sensitive to the diurnal, diurnal rhythm. The seasonal depression dis depressive disorder is treated very effectively by melatonin. But many studies have shown that. So human, normally, for thousands of years, you are out during daytime and you sleep during nighttime unless you are a bat. And, <clears throat> and, and this has created a mechanism that you are not happy if you have to go and walk during nighttime. So during nighttime, your melatonin goes up. Daytime, the light inhibits the melatonin. So low melatonin means you're awake. So when you travel abroad and you're jet lag, whenever you want to sleep, take a couple of melatonin, you're asleep. Uh, because your brain is used to be awake during that time. So melatonin effect is connects very well with the dopamine system. And when you have low, dopamine, low melatonin and low dopamine, you get depressed. This is a very important connection. <clears throat> so light is good for good mood and darkness. You get dark days in Sweden. The highest suicidal rate in the European countries in Sweden. It's always dark, always rainy. So light is very important for the health, uh, mental health. Alaskans? What do they do? Oh. Oh, okay. We have a question back here. What if you saw the dress blue and gold? What if you could see the dress both ways, blue right. and white? If you train yourself. Blue and gold. Blue and gold. You must have a mutation in the retina. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see both if you teach yourself how to see it both. You create a new pathway in the brain, demonstrated by studies. Create a new pathway so you can close your eye, open it, you see it color, and then you close and open, you see a different color. But you see gold and blue, I think we should talk after the lecture. <laughs> <coughs> um, we have somebody over here. Can you comment on the perception of music right. and the visual arts? Right, right. You know, people who are creative in, in one area, they are more likely to be creative in another area in the same field. Like artists, many singers, many poets are singers and musicians. <clears throat> because this group of people, they are more sensational. <clears throat> and the other group of people is more analytical. You cannot say the same thing about the other side. When you are good in physics, you are good in biology. But in the sensational areas, usually. And the normally, vision and audition, hearing and vision, are connected. When you are born, in the first three, four years of life, you make connections between every part of the brain is connected to every part of the brain. And you build more connections than three times more than adults have. Okay? Everything is connected to everything. Then when you are 12 or 15, you start pruning the unnecessary connections because you already don't, you have built enough 
experience, you get all the input in the world, put in the brain, now you're going to cut them to open a space for more experiences. So these cutters are pruners. This is a process controlled by a gene. And they cut these fibers. If these enzymes are very active and cut more fibers, too much, you become schizophrenic. You even cannot understand metaphors. You cannot connect things. If they cut less and less, you become very sensational and very uh, metaphorical. Now, if you cut less than necessary, you become synthetic. 3%, 5% of people are synthetes. What does that mean? They have, you listen to music, you don't see it, you don't hear it. You see colors. You can paint the music. There are many people like that, called synthetic <coughs> art. You listen to a song, you don't see, listen to it, you don't hear it, but you see it. I tell you the days of the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, to you, they are colors. Sunday is red, Monday is blue. How, how many of you have this phenomenon? It's not uncommon. See, we have one, you have two, three. Three percent of people do these things. Numbers, one, two, three, four, five. They look colors. So when these are too much connected, you get music and art together. They are separated. Yeah, and this phenomena, synesthesia, occurs more in families and more in artists. And that means there's a gene called C4 that controls all these things. So in the future, maybe you can uh, control that gene and make people more this side or that side. Great question. Um, oh, there's so many. Right here? I have a great grandson that was born blind. What can you tell me about what they've done analyzing blind people? Can you comment more on a bl blind person's brain? Yeah. We, are, we now know more about, you know, a human is a visual, visual creature. You use your vision to survive much more than you use your hearing, your taste, your skin. But when you lose your vision, the visual area in the brain will be replaced by other sensations. So like Helen Keller, you know, Helen Keller, you could write, her skin was basically the main sensation. You can write on it, she wrote books. You can write on it. So blind people become much more conscious, much more aware of that through other sensations. But let me tell you something very interesting. The brain doesn't care about where this impulse coming from as long as it goes to the right area. So now there's a new tool that's available, Japanese company. A blind man can see through his tongue. A small plate connected to a camera. Put in the tongue. The, digit, the signal is digitalized. You train the tongue that this signal means this, this signal means this after a week of training. Then you put this on your tongue and you walk. I have a friend who's in California. He was an orthopedic surgeon in Iraq in 2006. He was bombed by accident by an American airplane. And his face is gone, his vision is gone. And he's now an orthopedic surgeon in, in California. Now he's reading books using this plate and and read a book because the tongue is now the source <coughs> that basically the vehicle through which the signal is transferred to the back of the brain. So now you can read using your tongue. The tongue has many, of course, applications and usages, but one of them is you can read with it. Wow. Well, I'm afraid we need to wrap things up. We could, we could ask you questions for two more hours if we had it. Um, but help me thank Aziz one more time. Well, I, I forgot to tell uh, 
many people here are fasting, so it means a lot. Uh, it is not an easy task to listen to a lecture about the brain an hour before you before futur. It is not an easy thing. So Ramadan Karim, and thank you for coming. And those of you who are interested, we are going to have reception for futur in the next building. And on behalf of the Houston Museum of Natural Science and Rothko Chapel, thank you very much. Thank you.